Welcome to the War Room. Ryan here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it. Kent, Your Majesty, welcome to the War Room. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. <laughs> okay, you are, of course, a New York Times bestselling author, a, pro- a prolific author, one might say. Just help as someone who aspires to be a prolific author. How do you do it? Discipline, discipline. It's <laughs> it's it's all just a numbers game. If you can write a thousand to two thousand words a day, you'll have a book in a month or two. Wow. Okay. All right. So that's my problem. I'm not disciplined enough. That's I've heard that before. You're bringing up flashback flashbacks of my childhood. Okay. Um, <laughs> So this book, um, this was CNN, How Sex, Lies, and Spies Undid the World's Worst News Network. Um, interesting twist there, not in the world's best, the world's worst <laughs> news network. Um, yeah. Okay, why, why, the, why the title and why call them the world's worst? Well, the, this is uh, my third book with Project Veritas Whistleblowers. And so my previous two books have been about Google and Facebook. And then I was brought this project by Kerry Porch, who is a uh, was a whistleblower for CNN. He worked for them for two years, and then he went undercover for Project Veritas for about six months. And um, you know, it, I I actually have to say that I am somebody who, when CNN started, I was a huge fan, and I I would say there was a good twenty twenty two years there where I was a, a pretty solid CNN fan. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I grew up really idolizing Ted Turner and his vision. And actually the opening of the book is kind of a love letter to Ted Turner's vision because he thought that whenever there was, a, you know, a, a political debate, he should get the smartest person on the left and the smartest person on the right, give him a half an hour and, and let the public decide. And, what happened is in about 2003, he was pushed out. Uh, he, he ended up selling selling uh, CNN to Time Warner. Uh, and he was promised that he would have significant you know, influence and control, but that turned out not to be the case. And, and I think what happened is that CNN and actually a lot of other news agencies, rather than having that really good format of, you know, the smartest person on the right and the smartest person on the left, they decided, you know, if they were leftists, they'd have a pretty smart person on the left and the stupidest person on the right. And, uh, you know, if Fox News kind of has, you know, smart person on the right, and then they usually choose some stupid liberal that did something that day and you get the outrage of the day. So, Mm -hmm. you know, regardless of the news that you're going to, you're kind of getting, you know, not really the best of both sides. And and so this book, I think more than anything, is an attempt to say, you know, we've really strayed from that that vision because, you know, sometimes I don't know where I'm going to come down on an issue. I want to hear the best arguments on both sides. And, and you know, just because I may disagree with somebody doesn't mean I think they have green blood and, you know, eat children for breakfast. So, you know, we, we got to get back to that good old America where Republicans and Democrats would have barbecues and softball games together and, you know, discuss issues, but at the same time have, have great respect for the other side. Yeah, and I will link to this in the show notes we had on uh, Tobin Smith, who wrote the book Fox, Foxocracy inside the network's playbook of tribal warfare. Um, and so his 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 argument was very similar, which was he was one of those kind of guests that would come on to Fox and, and he was, he was kind of the heavy for the right or whatever side he's representing. And they'd bring on someone else. And he was saying in the interview, they'd actually give him the other person's talking points. So he would know like how to respond to them and stuff. And so it's, it's, it's a sad state of affairs because one of the things that it seems to me is there's now, whether it's uh, CNN or wherever, when you turn it on, there's not a good transition from we're saying news to we're doing uh, opinion pieces. If you open up a newspaper, you know, you know where the the op-eds are and you know where the, the news is supposed to be and the comics are and stuff. But with cable news, it's been kind of conflated to where you're not really sure which part of the day 
is supposed to be the hard news and which part of the day is supposed to be the the pontificators pontificating and it kind of mixes what's really going on there and that i think that's a a larger trend that we've seen that that it's if you stop and pause you go okay hey this is just people arguing but if you're trying to determine which is news and which is not you really have to step outside of it to understand what's going on in the in the, in the programming yeah I, I heard some uh somebody say the other day the best way to take the news is to you know spend 15 20 minutes looking at the news and then go and do other things you know don't <laughs> don't stay too long you know you'll get sucked into to the drama and, and you know getting information shouldn't be about manipulating your emotions it should be about you know activating your mind and saying like whoa okay there there's a really good point okay mm. oh oh on the other side that's a really good point i hadn't thought about that well let me walk away and think about that for a little while mm-hmm. well in in part of that seems to be driven by ad revenue right so you want viewers and so you know if you look at like the sports landscape stuff that doesn't matter the most popular shows, Skip Bayless, Stephen A. Smith, you know, they are great entertainers and they're great at getting people to click on their show and watch this debate over whether Le- LeBron or the Cowboys or whatever it is that really doesn't matter. But they get people sucked in and, yeah. you can see, OK, hey, it's entertainment, it's sports, whatever. But the danger is when you take it to a serious issue uh, about a bill or a news event or whatever it is, and then you you pare it down to. Um, this versus this always you've really flattened out the room for debate and discussion. And then you, so you have the ads, which you got to have. The other thing seems to be is a shorter program windows, right? You got three minutes or two minutes or five minutes, whatever it is to kind of get your point in. And so it's only about shooting that missile at your opponent so that you can score points. Yeah. hundred percent. It just, I, I love, you know, shows that give you time to slow down a little bit and you know with the cnn story i mean when i was growing up you know there was nobody i really respected more than i respected larry king and if you would listen to a larry king show he he you know his questions were you know never more than 10 words oh so tell me what happened how did you feel what did you think then right and he he would he would give people the time to to share themselves. And, and I think that, you know, one of the things that I've long believed is that if you really want to know who somebody is, just listen to them, mm. you know, five, 10 minutes, you know, they're going to reveal who they are and, and you're going to decide, well, do I like that person? Do I trust that person? You know, or if they say something that, you know, strikes you a little bit off, then, you know, you question them about it and, and see how they come back, you know, to the, do they attack you for asking the question or do they go, oh, yeah, you know, I may have been unclear. OK, yeah. A lot of people get this wrong. Let me let me give you my perspective. Maybe I'm wrong, but here's how I think about it. Right. OK. And so you mentioned that part of the the genesis for this project is tied up with the Project Veritas, which is controversial on the right. It seems to be hailed on the left. It seems to be uh, dismissed, it, which is, again, this interesting world that we're in. Um where the larger media companies almost feel that they have a, uh, a grip on truth, whether it's right or left. The Project Veritas seems to be uh, right, pro, left, against. But you can go to other issues, maybe Julian Assange or something like that, where you could see that the roles reverse. But in this case, Project Veritas um, has, at least from their perspective, exposed a lot of different organizations. But people have questioned the validity, like, are they cutting and dicing? And so how did you go through the process of verifying that this information is being told in the proper context? Well, you know, it, the, the thing that's really fun about my work with Project Veritas is, is I jokingly say that, you know, after James O'Keefe is done with them, then they come to me, you know, a, after he has done the videos and everything. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm not part of that process. But then I get the whistleblowers who, you know, when you do a 10 or 15 minute video, even if you do three or four of them, you know, there's still a lot of the story on the table. And so uh, Carrie Porch's story of reporting the bias behind the scenes at at CNN uh, was really shocking to a lot of people in 2019. And when I take these books, what I like to do is I want to go deeper than simply the story that Project Veritas showed on the screen. 
I'm very interested in who these whistleblowers are as human beings, because it seems to me that the public is interested in the character of these these whistleblowers. You know, who are these people who take these risks, which, you know, usually do not end up the, the, the risk they take. It's usually not a good gamble. It's not a good gamble in your life to be a whistleblower. And, you know, even if you reveal, you know, shocking secrets, it, it doesn't seem like the world at large, uh, you know, compensates you for that. It, you know, you, you can really look forward to two or three years of, of probably not, you know, having a job or a decent job. And, you know, you really kind of have to wait until, you know, the, the furor dies down um, for you to resume your normal life and, and have, you know, a, re- a regular paycheck. So, mm-hmm. um, so I, I start with what has already been done. And then specifically with this book, I felt that I needed to understand more about CNN because I had a bit of a mystery. The mystery was, why are they so biased? Is it just, is it just political or might there be other forces at work? So I hired one of the world's best group of researchers to do a deep dive into CNN to see if we can come up with, you know, a different a different view of CNN, a, a view of CNN that may not be left or right, but is, is more structural. It, it, what are the structural problems in our news that you know, is not bringing the country together, but kind of tearing us apart. And and so, so that was really my, my emphasis was saying, you know, why is it that, you know, I remember my parents being very Republican, but, you know, one of their, one, one of their friends was on the Democratic side of the aisle and said, hey, you know, I can get you into parties with uh, Dianne Feinstein and Barbara Boxer and, and uh, Nancy Pelosi. I mean, my parents were, you know, very interested in going to those things and, you know, hearing what the other side had to say, you know, and my parents met at the 1956 Republican convention. So I was kind of born a Republican, um, but my parents were not zealots who who wouldn't go and, and listen to the other side. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, listening to the other side, that's we, we, I say this to all the guests, but we spend a lot of time on this show bringing on guests from a lot of perspectives, letting them talk, trying to see where there might be some agreement, where there might be some slight pushback. Um, but the sensationalization of everything today really prohibits that kind of that kind of ability, um, you know, just being seen with someone. But I want to go back to the whistleblower comment you said there, because that it is an interesting point that whistleblowers typically are hailed by the side that likes the exposed the, the thing that was exposed and they are crucified by the other side. And it's a very interesting dynamic. So we had on the guy who um, John Paul Isaac, um, who had on who Hunter Biden's laptop came into. And so you think about him. Okay. okay. And so, you know, and you think about how that narrative unfolded. I remember wh- where I was when that narrative was unfolding and talking to someone at a major um, newspaper and they were like, ah, yeah, the New York post, I'm not too sure. And I'm like, well, well Okay. Maybe it's true or false. This is 2020. So maybe it's true or false. I don't know. But if it is true, shouldn't we be concerned that we should look into it? Whether it's Biden, Trump, whoever, whomever, shouldn't we at least go, well, hmm, is there some there there before before we say, eh, I'm not too sure. And, and, and it's just that kind of dismissiveness of the whistleblower from the other side, which I find quite astonishing. Um, but as you say, it's like, yes, you can see. This this tendency that the whistleblower is supported by the that by the, whatever side that you know that, that, that likes them, but the other side really goes to a long length to marginalize them and make them out to be a villain, which is a, a scary state to be in. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, one of the things that uh, I guess is one of the points that I argue. You know, this this is you know my opinion on things, but Kerry uh, Porch at the time he was doing this was getting his degree in psychology. And he ran across something that he brought up to me that I thought was really interesting, which was the profile of a domestic abuser. 
Now, a domestic abuser does not just physically abuse his part, his or her partner. Part of the whole game of the domestic abuser is getting the victim to voluntarily disassociate with those friends or family members who might give a different perspective on things, who might not like the abuser very much. And so it's kind of a, a head game that the domestic abuser plays with his victim. And I kind of said to myself, well, maybe this is exactly what we're seeing in the news. This is exactly the profile. And, and I open up the book with some personal instances that I experienced in 2020 in which people would say to me things like, well, I decided that I was going to block any friend or family member on Facebook who voted for Donald Trump. And in, in 20 it, or in 2016, they, they had said this. And I thought, that's really remarkable. And, and then in the next breath, they'd say, and in the next election, I'm going to I'm going to dedicate myself to to defeating Trump. And I thought, well, how are you going to do that? if you won't talk to the people who voted for Trump the first time. It just, it, it made no sense. And there, there's sort of this craziness that I, I see, you know, on the left and on the right in, in certain ways. And I, I just said to myself, what's driving this? Because, you know, Ted Turner's first remarks at the opening of CNN was, how this was supposed to bring us together mm-hmm. in brotherhood by being able to talk to each other and ex- exchange our perspectives. And CNN, you know, in my mind, has been one of the worst offenders for dividing people. And, and I, I kind of said, you know, has, has CNN basically become a domestic abuser, convincing people not to talk to each other? Well, it, it seems that the the stakes of what CNN or Fox or MSNBC or whoever it is talking are so high that it's very hard to remove personal bias. And so if you take an issue um, like taxes or abortion or border uh, the border, whatever it might be, then you believe it's an important issue. It's really hard if you're talking to millions of people to say, I want to present the best of the other side because you understand inherently that you might hurt your case. Right. And so it feels like the realization of the power that these networks hold, whether they're, they're thinking about it you know, on a daily basis or just implicit, I, I do understand the, the how they could get to those spots because the ability to, to your point about talking to people, if they present a better side to the opposite argument than their side can present, they might who they would want to win the election might lose. And so you have this, you have this power in, um, and, and trying to wield it responsibly is a tall order. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to excuse the behavior, but also I do see that if you're looking at, you know, you know, 3 million viewers a night or whatever, and you go, man, if we bring on some really good Republicans, we might lose this debate and Trump or whomever it is might win. Um, I think that's probably the concern. Yeah, it could be. And I also think that there's a number of other factors that have happened. You know, when the internet came along, one of the, uh, casualties of the internet was when Craigslist came around. Now, what did Craigslist do? It stole from the newspaper so much of their revenue for want ad, for want ads and yeah, and classifieds. And, and people didn't realize that the want ads and the classifieds were a huge source of revenue for the newspapers. So that that money that they got from the want ads they could put into investigative journalism. Well, suddenly that money is gone and they're not able to uh, do those kinds of, of stories anymore. I think a, a similar thing has happened with the internet where you've been able to figure out how emotional people are getting about the stories that you put out there. So what happens is suddenly the news organizations you know, could figure out minute by minute how engaged people were. 
And what they found is that, you know, outrage keeps eyeballs on the screen. And so you can push that. And, and I, I think to a great extent, that's what the media has done. They, they've said, oh, my God, if we outrage people, we keep their eyes on us. Well, that's like just taking, you know, main mainlining sugar. OK, that's that's like eating candy all mm-hmm. day long. Yes, it does keep you engaged, but there's a crash. And I, and I think that, you know, broadcasters need to take the long term view that they need to be responsible to keep their audiences because, you know, what's happened is, you know, the percentage of people watching the news on a regular basis through the networks is so incredibly small. I mean, you know, Tucker Carlson has two to three million on a good night. OK, CNN is struggling to get a million a night. This is a country of, you know, what, 330 million people. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you have four or five million people a night watching these news stations that, you know, used to command 40 to 50 percent of the population. So something has gone really wrong. And I think it's the fact that, you know, so many people have just tuned out because they said, God, they're just they're just mainlining outrage and emotionalism and gosh it's it's so much better if i go take my dog for a walk or you know go visit with the neighbors or or you know go throw the ball with my kids mm-hmm. and, and so I, I i think what's what's happened is that the news media you know they got hooked on outrage and now they're kind of saying well why can't we keep people engaged well we kind of have outrage overload yeah well you i mean i think the, the numbers bear this out it's people would rather listen to joe rogan for three hours which you never would have thought would have been a thing you know 15 years ago if i said hey this guy's gonna have three hours of non-stop conversation with all sorts of people you'd go yeah that's gonna be a flop but it's not and there's because the outrage isn't manufactured it's it's a it's a raw conversation you get to hear, get to go back and forth. And so I do think that you you have seen that. And Rogan's numbers crush all of those guys combined normally. Like his his podcast is is gargantuan. And um, and so you, I think you're onto something there. But I, going back to something you said a minute ago, you said that you think CNN's the worst. So we've had people on who say Fox is the worst. I don't think yeah. anyone really cares about MSNBC, but perhaps MSNBC might be the worst. Why do you think CNN is worse than Fox or the other ones? Well, it, it part, partly it's, it's just a bit of perspective. That was the story I was handed. Uh, the investigation that I did seems to suggest that there are some things that are going on at CNN, which should be of great interest to the public. Um, but, but I specifically do not limit my criticisms to CNN. You know, the, the problems that I find at CNN, I, I'm saying I, I think this is probably suggestive of what's going on at a lot of news agencies. It's just that CNN was a story that, that I was handed. Okay. And so let's unpack a little bit more here. So we have the whistleblower. You sit down with him. Are you ever concerned when you're dealing with these stories, balancing out the perspectives? So it, it, it's one thing, I, I suppose, if you have um, a, a lot of internal emails, maybe um, that that could shed some light, or or some documents, some official documents that were inside of a company that were released. But when Project Veritas, a lot of what they're doing, from what I've seen at least, is a lot of interviews. And so this interview, other interviews, um, they're un, unknowingly be recorded, of course. But people say things when they feel more free to say things and maybe a little bit more loose than they would be if they were actually answering the question to the highest ability. Like, so are you afraid that, that sometimes these conversations are a little bit slanted or a little bit hyperbolic and you kind of rein that in, or do you kind of take them at face value? Well, the, what I try to do in my books is the, what appeared on project Veritas is really a small part of the story. So, um, you know, I, I spend the, the first part of the book, really talking a lot, a lot about Ted Turner, mm-hmm. Ted Turner's life and, and what his vision was for CNN at the beginning. 
Then I, I do take a couple examples from the Project Veritas tapes, but I think that one of the problems that's happened in journalism is that corporate power has basically taken control over a lot of these newspapers. So what you'll get in like an evening broadcast or, you know, even in, in the papers is a very curated version of the truth. You know, I grew up with 60 Minutes doing undercover investigations. And, and, you know, what Project Veritas says is, you know, they feel that a lot of the news media lies to their viewers. And what Project Veritas's take on it is they may lie to the subjects of the investigation, but they're not lying to their viewers. I, I think a, a perfect example of that is the email, the video that was recently released about the Pfizer employee who was talking about conversations at Pfizer about manipulating the COVID virus in order to generate more vaccines and, you know, questions about whether something could escape. Right. And, and, and it seemed to get really close to the line of saying, well, yeah, we're making these and, you know, they didn't say they would release them, but it kind of was implied that they were. Mm -hmm. And then, it, you know, it was really funny that Pfizer comes out with a statement on a Friday night, a couple of days later. And when you read it, and I, I'm an attorney, so, you know, I, I, I read things closely and you read it closely and they say, you know, at one point, well, yeah, we are playing around with this virus, but, mm -hmm. but only because we think it's really important. And you go, well, they just admitted what was on the video that, you know, people are saying is not true. And as, as far as I read it, you know, I read that as, as a, a full confession from Pfizer that they were absolutely doing the things that this, this, uh, you know, employees said they were doing and, you know, he had said, yeah, we're doing it, but we don't want to publicize it. Well, kind of to me, that's, that's what journalism should be is, mm -hmm. you know, William Randolph Hearst always said that uh, the news is something somebody doesn't want to tell you. <laughs> Everything else is just public relations. Yeah. I've thought about that quote quite often because uh, at face value, I go, yes, I, I can see that. Uh, and then there's other times I go, well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure, but I, I, I understand the, the, at least the, the sentiment there. So going through this process with CNN, what was the most stunning thing that you, that you came to realize that maybe you didn't expect going into this process? Well, here's what I completely didn't expect. So I'd known the story of bias. And so, uh, as I said, I wanted to do more of a deep dive into CNN. And so what I did was I hired this group of researchers who I, I believe is are some of the best researchers in the world. And I said, I, I have a number of questions about CNN, you know, go hunt and see what you can find in publicly available databases. And, you know, we don't do anything illegal, no hacking, nothing like that. And they came back with one, I think, are two incredibly shocking revelations which we should talk about the first is that my my researchers are are really kind of experts in cybersecurity and so cnn is a company that says it has about 4000 employees it it seems like with all the contractors and everything it's it's probably closer to 6 or 7000 but okay you know 4 4 to 6000 people working for cnn well, they have what's called a digital intelligence group with more than 220 employees. And so when my cyber guys saw that, they said, whoa, wait a minute. You really don't need any more than 15 to 20 guys if you're going to protect your network. And, and you know, let, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. They're a news agency. They really want to make sure their network is protected. So let's double that number. Let's say 40. All right. Shouldn't be any more than than 40 people working on protecting their network, but they've got 220. 
And when my guys dove into the backgrounds of those who were running this digital intelligence group, what they found is that these people had cyber warfare fighting experience from our intelligence agencies. One of these guys named Edwin Covert. Okay. How's that name a name for a, a spy? His last name is Covert. Okay. So um, Covert was a counterintelligence special agent instructor. And he's got over 30 years of cyber warfare fighting experience. And so my guys were saying, well, Kent, we can't tell you that this is a digital warfare fighting unit that is designed to go on offense. What we can tell you is that if it was just protection, it would be maybe 40 people at most. It's five times larger than is necessary to protect the CNN network. And these guys are former spooks who have experience with cyber warfare fighting experience. So we can't tell you that CNN is planning to hack Fox or, you know, Next News Network or One America News. But they seem to have the capability and maybe they'll also have the capability to do stuff in foreign countries. And so that was was really concerning about why this digital intelligence unit was so large. It doesn't seem like it needs to be that large. There's no reason that my cyber guys could tell me. And then that led into another curious pattern, which is we identified 21 individuals at CNN who at some point in their careers left journalism and then went to go work for the government in an intelligence capacity and then went back to CNN or, or to journalism. So it raises the question of, you know, is this just somebody having a, you know, mid-career crisis? But when you think about it, when you, you stand back and look at it, you go, well, wait a minute. A journalist is supposed to speak truth to power. Mm-hmm. The journalist is not supposed to go to work for power, sign secrecy oaths with power, and then go back to journalism. Mm -hmm. That would compromise their objectivity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember a time when journalists would say things like, I would never go to dinner with a politician because that would cross an ethical line. You know, I would be buddy, buddy. A journalist is supposed to be somewhat antagonistic to the government. Okay. They're the check on power. But instead of being a check on power, if they're getting their check from power, that just doesn't seem like a good arrangement for us, the public. Okay. So you covered three things there. I'll I'll, I'll go back to the first one. Some of the spies um, or the covert, whatever, uh, the, op, the the unit. Did you did you guys look at like Fox or MSNBC to see or CBS, whomever, to see if they had units like this that were similar in size or larger? Nope, we did not. Okay. And the other thing and, is... And, 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 you know, but what, what I, we did was, you know, and talking about going to both sides, the best piece of evidence that we came across was basically from... Um, Carl Bernstein of Woodward and Bernstein in 1977, what he did was he um, put together a 25,000 word article in Rolling Stone about the CIA having more than 400 assets in journalism, in the media. And I mean, it was such a thorough um, article. He, He talked about why this all happened because, you know, the, the CIA in that instance, you know, is really founded by a bunch of Ivy League guys. OK, so what do we get with journalists these days? Well, they're Ivy League guys. So 
these spies and the journalists are going to the same schools and and they have a similar worldview. So it's real easy for them to cross the line. So, you know, this was something that in the 1970s was talked about a great deal. And when I got the evidence and showed it to my publisher, now I, th this is where I, I, I think you and my publisher would, would agree 100 percent. I mean, my publisher was really concerned about the evidence that I was presenting it and whether it was reliable and legitimate. And if I was asking some some reasonable questions. And yeah. so what we did was we took that evidence. We gave it to two two people. One was a 33 year veteran of the FBI. The other was kind of as left wing as you can get. Uh, Danny Sheehan, he's the um, one of the four guys who did the Pentagon Papers case. Mm -hmm. And so when I had my two experts, one on the right, one on the left, look through the evidence, the, the, the former FBI agent said, you know, look, you you've gotten this information from publicly available sources. So these are the individuals themselves putting their, their resumes out basically on LinkedIn and bragging about their intelligence connections. He said, look, sometimes people will puff up their resumes a little bit. So there may be a little bit of that. So you may be overstating a little bit, mm -hmm. but you're raising some real good questions. And that, that FBI agent had a, a really great you know, story to tell me, which was he had basically been the FBI head at a couple foreign capitals which meant that he had to work um, with the CIA station chiefs in the area and the, and the local CIA guys. And he was frustrated because the FBI, when he went into it, was an agency that, you know, in the wake of the J. Edgar Hoover days, they had turned back to being a law enforcement organization, which meant that whatever an FBI agent was doing they knew that eventually they might have to stand up in a court of law, raise their right hand and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. OK, that's different than an intelligence agency. Right. And what the guy was finding in his dealings with the CIA guys overseas is he said, these CIA guys lie about everything <laughs> why you know if i ask him were they at the barbers on tuesday they'll say no i was at the bookstore all day mm -hmm. and i know i saw him at the barber shop mm -hmm. and so he, he actually went up to the uh, was talking to the cia station chief about this and he's like why do you guys lie to me about everything even about unimportant stuff and he goes yeah it's kind of an occupational hazard we have to have training sessions with our guys where we tell them you don't have to lie about everything. Okay. But it just becomes such a habit. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, that's the world of intelligence. Okay. You know, from somebody who's worked with them. So, you know, my FBI guy is saying like, yeah, some of these guys, they may puffed on their resume a little bit about what they did. I, I'm not sure, but is it overall really great questions? And, you know, given the history and everything, you know, I, I can't disagree with any of the questions that you're asking. And, you know, then I go to, you know, the lefty guy, you know, Danny Sheehan. He was one of the four attorneys who handled the Pentagon Papers case. He was responsible for developing the information that led to the Iran-Contra scandal. You know, he's just like all over this stuff. And, and, and you know, his comments were great. And he said, look you barely scratched the surface, okay? This is so, you know, you may have identified the 21 stupidest intelligence agents that the intelligence agencies have because they were stupid enough to list their intelligence associations on their own resumes, okay? Where right. anybody could see it, where anybody who has half a brain and has some experience would know, that's an intelligence guy. So, mm -hmm. so you know, the, the in, information was vetted. So, you know, I'm really clear in saying, I can tell you a number of things. I can tell you 
that there is this strange pattern of journalists going to work for the government in intelligence positions. For example, Jim Secuto is their national security correspondent. All right, so he's the one who's supposed to be telling us the truth about what foreign governments are doing and our government is doing, okay? That's so we can be informed citizens. Well, from December 2011 to May of 2013, he was chief of staff at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, China, and special advisor to our ambassador there. Now, you can't tell me that in that position, the greatest secrets we have didn't pass through his hands. Now, in order for those secrets to pass through his hands, he had to sign some of the most ironclad security oaths that our government has. And are you telling me that he can do that job and then he can go back to CNN and be an objective reporter? No, that's just crazy. And so, you know, when you see this pattern again and again of, you know, why are these journalists, you know, who who are supposed to be antagonistic to the government, you know, they're supposed to be a check on power, but they're getting a check from power. Mm-hmm. No, uh, so thank you for unpacking that. That's why we like long forms. So we can ask the questions and you can unfold all that. That's helpful. One of the things that I think the general public is probably more aware of now than they have been historically is, to your point, there's the journalists who are going back and forth, but also a lot of the commentators are former CIA, FBI, military generals. And so when you bring them on to analyze the news, the perspective that you're getting is a very, very small window, A, because they view the world a certain way, but B, they are limited if they want to keep their security clearance. They're limited on what they can say. And so you have it from both sides. You have the journalists who are kind of tied up, and then you have all these panelists who are who are government contractors, essentially, because they're, they're, they're making money. And so it's a very slanted and skewed ability to, even if they are, from their perspective, being objective, even then they're still skewed by all these other things that they can and can't say. So it, it, it really is a concerning trend that we've seen in the media. And to your point about the Carl Bernstein, this goes back to the JFK assassination type stuff. You know, people that were in the news then, they were like, oh, wow, those were all, those were all spies. Um, I want to talk about the check on power thing because you brought that up a few times. So when you talk about CNN, how should a, an organization and how do you think CNN is failing to keep a check on power? Because on some level you said, hey, they don't, they shouldn't have dinner with the journalists. Great. I mean, with it with politicians, great. But the flip side is if you want to get a good story, you got to buddy up to someone. You know, you got to buddy up to someone. So you, you said that they failed at doing this, but so how have they failed? And then how would you propose that they can get this inside information without butting up to, butting up to people? Well, there's there's a number of things that are covered in the story, which, and, and I think Carrie's story is instructive for a lot of us. So Carrie did not start working at CNN as a conservative. He started working at CNN as a Bernie Sanders supporter, okay? In the previous election cycle, he'd worked 10 hours a week volunteering for Bernie Sanders in Colorado, okay? So he's a Bernie bro. He goes to CNN. He is the uplink satellite technician, which means basically he makes sure that the trucks, the satellite trucks are ready to go. He drives it to the location, gets all the technology set up. The anchors take over, and then he goes and gets a coffee for 12 hours, okay? So the first big job that he gets called on is the Charlottesville riots, okay? So he goes down there, and he is on location as this craziness is taking place. And You know, he sees that basically a half an hour before that crazed lunatic drives his car into that crowd of people killing a female protester, that CNN is airing an interview with David Duke, the former head of the Ku Klux Klan. He is watching the story as Trump goes out and makes all of his 
you know, statements about it. And, and here he's a Bernie Sanders supporter and, he, you know, no love for Trump whatsoever. Right. And he's like, well, you know, he's acting like an American president should. He's he's saying, you know, we got to calm this down. You know, we got to love each other. We can't engage in violence. I, you know, understand that there are strong opinions on whether these statues of Confederate leaders should stay up. You know, they're offensive to some. They're historical to others. And, you know, here he is watching this and he's like, they're totally screwing Trump over. He did not say that the neo-Nazis or Ku Klux Klan members were fine people. He was saying the exact opposite. And that that started a process in his brain Mm -hmm. where he said, "Okay, let me see if there are other instances in which this is going on. And and, you know, that's why I am so dedicated to creating a dialogue between left and right. I am happy to sit here and go that liberals and leftists that I know can be some of the finest people on on the face of the earth. I live in California, okay? I know liberals, beautiful, wonderful people. I'm not one, I'm a conservative, but God, fantastic people. You know, and Carrie Porch, a Bernie bro, a fantastic human being. And when he saw things change, because even though he was political, he wanted to be fair. And I, I, I jokingly say that he's always got this quirk that, you know, when he hears, he, he likes to engage in conversations. And when, you know, somebody's giving him a different perspective, you know, one of his little verbal quirks is he'll go, yeah, that's fair enough. Okay, I get that. Fair enough. And, and I'm like, yeah, shouldn't we all be fair enough to, you know, to the other side? And, and so, mm-hmm. you know, when he saw what happened with Charlottesville, and then there was another massacre at a synagogue, I believe in Philadelphia, and he saw how they played that. And then he saw the Russian collusion thing. I mean, the, the, one of the funny stories is basically he was the guy responsible for getting the satellite truck to its the best location when the Mueller report came out. So, you know, CNN actually had the best location when the Mueller report came out um, because Kerry got up at like two o'clock in the morning and made sure that the truck was parked one place. And, and, you know, when the Mueller report came out, you know, he's responsible for making sure that the truck is at the best location. So, you know, the, the anchors look beautiful and where is, is Kerry as they're doing that. He's walked over to the Trump International Hotel and he's watching CNN on the bar in the Trump Hotel with all these Trump supporters who are going, okay, where's the beef? Where's the beef? You know, and so it, you know, God loved Kerry because, you know, he could be, you know, very, you know, you know, think on one side of the political aisle, but he goes over to the other political side of the aisle and says like, okay, what do you think? You know, you're not two headed monsters, you know, and and he, you know, he had a lot of fun visiting the Trump hotel during that time because he'd be sitting at the bar and, you know, it's a real friendly social place and people would go, Hey, what do you do? And and go, Oh, I work for CNN. And, And he said, you know, these very conservative people would always go, Oh, what's that like? You know, he's, he's like, expecting to be attacked and everything. And they're just like, no, I'm curious. What is it like working at CNN? You know, I, we hear things about it, but you know, I, I'd much, much rather hear from an insider, you know, is it, is it as bad or, you know, there are things we're missing. And he's like, wow, these people are so open. I'm like, yeah, we, we conservatives tend to be. Final question for me is, you know, what do you hope to accomplish with the book? So you you touched on a few things here about um, there's some unique problems with CNN. You've also alluded to the there's problems with other news networks. It, it, what what do you try? What do you hope that when someone reads this book, they walk away thinking? Well, it's a great question. So let me let me read to you what Ted Turner said upon the the uh, upon the debut of CNN. And, and, and think about how how quaint 
this sounds in our current media environment. To act upon one's convictions while others wait. To create a positive force in a world where cynics abound. To provide information to people when it wasn't available before. To offer those who want it a choice. For the American people whose thirst for understanding and a better life have made this venture possible. For the cable industry whose pioneering spirit caused this great step forward in communications and for those employees of Turner Broadcasting whose total commitment to their company has brought us together today, I dedicate the News Channel for America, the Cable News Network. Now, it, that sounds like from a bygone era, you know, to create a positive force in a world where cynics abound. I mean, that's what it's all about. I, you know, I want to I want to have as wide a circle of friends as possible, you know, come to my funeral. I, mean, I don't want it to just be <laughs> one side of the aisle. You know, I, I want people to see that I was a human being trying to understand my world and make the world a better place. And, and, you know, you, you may not agree with me today, but maybe you'll agree with me tomorrow. And maybe I won't agree with my current self tomorrow. But I am I am the same person. I, I am trying to make a positive difference. And, and, and that's that's what I hope to achieve with this book. OK, well, we will link to the book. We will link to your website where other books can be found anywhere else you want us to send people to. And, and, and my publisher always tells me I got to show the book. Okay. There you go. Uh, there, there are two other things I'd like to, uh, a couple other things I'd like to mention. So um, uh, you can find me on Twitter at this was CNN. Uh, we're also doing a social media campaign. So if you could use the hashtag, this was CNN or hashtag CNN spooks, we'll be able to figure out how much uh, impact we're having. Uh, you can go to my website to find out more about the books that I've written. And that is at kentheckandlivelybooks.com. Okay. And what was the social media handle? Not the, the hashtags, but where you at on Twitter? Uh, this was CNN. Okay. All right. We'll link the to... book. I, I always take the name of, the, of my current book for my handle. Okay. We will link to all that in the show notes. Kent, thank you for your time today. Thanks so much. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five-star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? Helps keep the show going and ad-free. Thank you so much.